Welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we discuss the environmental, social, and governance implications of the weekly news. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and I am joined by Matt Muscardi and Megan Eastman. This week, Capital One is having trouble telling you who is in your wallet, and Cargill gets grilled by NGOs after dropping its deforestation pledges. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned. Okay, so our first story is about who might be in your wallet. (laughs) Capital One Financial Corporation announced a data breach that occurred in March 2019, impacting approximately 106 million credit card customers and applicants in the United States and Canada. The hacker allegedly exploited a misconfigured firewall, gained access to names, birth dates, social security numbers, basically anything you would need to commit identity fraud. And the acknowledgement came after the arrest of the hacker this week after she bragged about it on online forums. So the stack card for Capital One, as we do at this time, we actually just downgraded it to a B, but it wasn't in sole reaction to this breach. Capital One has the second highest number of consumer controversies and complaints in its industry peer set, and it has the lowest customer protection capabilities among its peers. It has had warnings by federal regulators about providing too much customer information to tellers, and it has a high reliance on lower-income customers, those which would be most acutely affected by a loss of personal finances, such as a breach like this. And Capital One's board doesn't have the sort of expertise we would like to see in a company of the size and complexity, so those factors in combination led to the downgrade. But still, I think we need to put this into context, especially because we just talked about Equifax last week. Of the 100 million records lost by Capital One, only 140,000 were not encrypted. And there's no evidence the files ever left the hacker's computer. So Matt, tell me, put this into context for me. Is this like the Equifax breach we talked about last week, or is this something different entirely the capital one um breach like unlike equifax i think the equifax breach to me is about a company's lack of internal controls in dealing with sensitive data the capital one breach is not so much about that the capital one breach there's sort of the two conversations one is the regulatory conversation so if you're an investor in capital one you wonder whether um, regulation will be implemented in the U.S. that would change the outcome. Because right now, the damage to Capital One is likely to be limited in terms of financial outlay. Yeah, but if we're talking about this from a social standpoint, this is this is a big deal. I mean, this was 100 million people. And though Capital One didn't do anything wrong, like how Facebook actually sold data to Cambridge Analytica, this still... This still has social implications, and it also has some business-to-business implications because the hack actually came from an ex-Amazon employee, and Amazon has been providing Capital One with data security, at least in part, and so she hacked back into the system that she supposedly helped maintain. But But there's this bigger question about, like, you're outsourcing your data security and you're doing it in the cloud, you know, you have to trust that that is totally protected in some ways. Um, and well, we view that as a benefit, right? I mean, Microsoft Office's cloud, we see 365 as being like actually a pretty good thing to do. Right. The, the theory is that these companies that specialize in this kind of thing are going to be able to do it better and more reliably than 
every company trying to do it on their own. And that's probably mostly true. That probably is. And, but, but it would, if there is um, a breach, it's a, it's a, it could be a business to business trust kind of breach. Like, can we trust our vendor? I mean, Capital One at this point, they, you know, they had a $400 million um, data breach insurance policy with a 10 million deductible. So they may, you know, pay $10 million out of pocket, which for them is going to be nothing. Uh, and, uh, and, effectively have no future cost implications necessarily. Yeah, um, for them it's going to be nothing, but actually Megan Megan brought up something um when we were talking about this earlier and she this was in the New York Times article that uh didn't break the story but explored the story and it said quote Capital One said the bank account numbers were linked to customers with secured credit cards. Secured cards require customers to put forth a sum of money of 200 250 dollars in exchange for the card. And that money down is done for consumers that have a lower base of income, which actually David Fraser, our analyst on consumer finance, has written about in the Capital One ESG tier sheet. So Capital One might not be paying a big fine, but Matt, this this consumer base could be hit really hard by this. And while I don't think this is similar to Equifax or Facebook, it still has, as I said, a big deal from a social standpoint. So if we are thinking about this from a social impact perspective, if we could change the conversation toward that, this is much more troubling, right? Yeah, this is a pretty big deal. It's not just everyday people whose data was uh, compromised, or and by everyday people, I mean kind of a broad swath of the population. It, it was disproportionately people whose finances are precarious and who therefore are going to have a harder time coping with the aftermath if their identity were to be stolen. And hopefully that's not going to be the case here because uh, it looks like a lot of it was not actually disseminated, but it could have been. So folks like this, if their identity were to be stolen, the the process for dealing with that in the United States is basically a massive hassle and it requires education and wherewithal and so on resources to deal with it. If, if we're looking at a company such as Capital One now, such as Facebook, such as Equifax, such as any of these online companies that have a dearth of consumer information on their books. We don't look at the social implications of it. We more so look at whether or not they've disclosed policy, right? We don't, do we look at them and say, uh, hey, you you are catering to a bunch of low-income individuals. We actually raise them up because of that access to finance, right? And is this now a situation where if companies claim they are democratizing finance by providing access to those individuals with lower incomes, are going to have to have more scrutiny put toward them in situ because situations like this can occur and it can disproportionately affect people that are quite vulnerable to them. I don't I don't think there's other than that financial sorry, other than that regulatory angle angle that Matt was just talking about, I don't think there's a huge financial relevance piece there, but there is certainly a social impact piece, like I was saying earlier. And so you do get a segment of the investment world who is concerned about that and wants to influence the companies in their portfolios to do better. And so I could see a company like Capital One being, you know, maybe an engagement target to say, you know, not only do you need to be careful not to exploit these kinds of customers financially, with the types of products you offer them, because of course that's the flip side of access to finance is exploitative mm -hmm. financial products. But you also have to be extra careful around protecting their data because they're in a 
weaker position than the average citizen to be able to deal with it because they have fewer resources. So so what would you look for in these type of companies or, or how would you engage with them to ensure that they are paying attention to, the, to these type of uh, issues? It is more focused on this angle of who their big customer base is. And so you expect companies like this to have financial literacy programs and that sort of thing. And, you know, some of them are better than others and so forth. But, you know, there's they at least pay lip service to the idea of educating their customers on how to manage their finances more safely or responsibly for their long-term financial health. And that data protection and identity theft aftermath steps to take measures and so forth probably ought to be part of that conversation. So I would want to know like what, if someone, if you've lost someone's data, um, you know, the cost for you, but what's the impact on them based on what you know, their income level to be like, you could cost out the cost to your user of a data loss instead of the cost to you, the yeah, company. That's true. And the question I'd want to know is what's the user born cost of a data loss if it were to happen? Because if you can price that, then effectively you can. In dollars, but also in some sort of life disruption. Metric. I mean, yeah, time, dollars, like th there can be some sort of estimation that you can do. Um, if you can cost that in some meaningful way, then as an investor, you can actually see, well, now there's a subset of your customers that either won't want to deal with you anymore um, if they have the option to go somewhere else, or um, you've, they've put, been put in a position of strain where if they even if they want to deal with you, it may be more difficult for them to take on credit or, or meet their financial obligations in the first place. But without that data, without that kind of cost, some sort of cost estimate or metric, it's really hard to see what percentage of the people whose data you lost um, will be most negatively impacted. And could that eventually come back to you, come back to haunt you? Okay, so for our second story, the environmental advocacy group Mighty Earth published a report with the fulsome title, Cargill, the worst company in the world, chastising the company for not meeting its promised social and environmental pledges. Since the signing of the New York Declaration on Forests to eliminate deforestation from its supply chain, they write, Cargill has continued to drive the destruction of pristine landscapes, remaining one of the worst actors on the world stage and one of the greatest threats to native ecosystems across the globe. Translation, I think, why must you make these promises you cannot keep? So Cargill is a private company, but there are a list of companies that are complicit in deforestation due to Cargill's infractions, according to Mighty Earth. That includes Bunge Limited, Archer Daniels Midland, Tyson, JBS, BRF, Ahold Del Hayes, I pronounced that poorly, and McDonald's. So many of these companies have 2020 and beyond pledges to eliminate unsustainable practices from their supply chains. That includes a very public... Um, pledged by McDonald's. And so Megan, Matt, does Mighty Earth make you worry about the ability of large global companies to meet their sustainability pledges? It's really more a question about, you know, targets and, and why do you set them and why do you make them public and what do you mean by them? And for an investor, it, we, we look at 
targets for things like reducing carbon emissions or water intensity, where companies do need to do that to remain resilient over the long term. And a target is something you, you can measure progress against and see that hopefully they're taking it seriously. But then you get something like this Cargill case where they did make a very public target and then have decided to abandon it. And that seems like a different kind of target. I'm torn a little bit because like, I know that some of the targets that get set are effectively either for marketing purposes or for, um, you know, not necessarily just marketing purposes, like they're setting a target, but you, you know, there may be less material targets, right? And as an investor, you kind of have this urge to be like, well, that target doesn't really matter from a material standpoint. At the same time, setting a target should matter. If you are willing to go on the public record and say, we are going to do commitment. X, I am making a, that's a social contract as much as it is a, an investor contract, right? Yeah, right. And and the key question is, how are you going to get there? And if you cannot get there, why not? And why did you set something that you couldn't achieve? Did you just not know? Yeah, exactly. Is it because you didn't try very hard? Is it because you went into it kind of naively and didn't really understand the complexities? Is it because you tried your hardest and out, outside circumstances interfered and made it impossible? What's actually going on there? Well, then, what, what do you view? What do you view as good or bad in that instance? Do you, do we have kind of a tier where we say, okay, you've tried to do this and it didn't work, or you didn't even try and it was a marketing purpose? And why do you? Well, even I think set you that? don't necessarily know that when the target is set. I mean, so so I can right. I can give you an interesting anecdote from the inside i've been asked to a board meetings of banks where they're discussing sustainability stuff right um and their strategies and things like that so i was in a board meeting with a, a with a multinational global bank a massive bank with the chairman of the board and a bunch of board members and then a bunch of their executives and they were touting at the time and this is years ago now um uh they were ending mountaintop coal mining uh, financing. They were no longer going to finance mountaintop coal removal. Um, and I remember sitting there thinking, I think what they want my response to be is that's great. Like we're going to check the box and say you did an amazing job. But I, but I ended up asking a few questions like, how much of fi that financing do you actually do? And they were like, it's point zero 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 one percent of our portfolio. I mean, it's almost not, it's it's basically totally immaterial. And then I said were you going to continue doing it? Like, is the reason you stopped, you know, and did you stop because like it's not environmentally feasible anymore or like you're worried about, you know, reputational risk or or what? And they said, yeah, that, that's part of it. It also was no longer economically viable um, because yeah. coal is in, in, you know, it's in basically structural decline. And, I, and with the head of the investment banking, I basically said, so making the announcement, isn't that just sort of capitalizing on something you weren't going to do anyway and spinning it as an environmental decision so that someone like me or the investors that I represent would think favorably on your bank? And he, and they were a little perplexed, right? Um and and I but I think that gets at the heart of the question, right? Because those kinds of announcements come out all the time, and that's part of the reason why you kind of have you can't rely on what the company just tells you because it's really hard to gauge that. I think there's a I think we have to first. I, I agree with all that, and and moving from that, I think we do have to differentiate what different targets are like. If 
Matt, you brought this up during our pre-call. You said if Tesla missed a target about delivering Model 3 cars, people lose their mind and the, the stock price falls. I, I don't think McDonald's stock price would fall if all of a sudden they said we're still using wood from ancient growth forests. And I think that either is that either is a problem of um, motivation uh, in the stock market, or it's just there are mechanisms set up now that ESG tries to adjust for, where a company's stock price or a company's profitability will only fall if these missed targets are earnings, production lines, or something of the sort. So is it not only that intention needs to be taken into account, but actual supply chain reliance and and how? It is at risk due to a missed environmental or social target, or what happens when uh, you continually miss a publicly announced ESG-esque target. That I mean, a constant string of sort of failure to hit targets that you don't think really matter then means that there is a subset of stakeholders who are increasingly wary of anything that you say. You're breaking the social contract, even if it's with a subset yeah. of people you don't think you care about now. I mean, ESG 15 years ago, no one cared about. But if you broke the social contract with with the people 15 years ago, now it's not exactly like they're lining up to believe the things you say. So I can can sum what you're saying is that not only does intention matter, but what matters is the ability to set realistic targets by management. And that now includes environmental targets, for example. And track record. And I guess integrity in the the intention or in the expressed intention, because I think you're right, Matt, and that's something that I had wanted to get at earlier is that, you know, one missed target, okay, fine, or or this isn't even a missed target, it's an abandoned target. You see that happen for a variety of reasons, but if you start to see a pattern that as an investor, not just as other stakeholders, but as an investor, you might start to look at that company and say, what else are they telling me that I should be skeptical yeah, about? Yeah. And that starts to bleed into all kinds of other things and make you question governance and management and so forth in kind of a worst case scenario. Is this just the canary in the coal mine, so to speak? Is it, or is it really just a one-off? That's it for the week. I wanted to thank Matt Muscardi and Megan Eastman for joining me to discuss this week's news with an ESG twist. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and thank you very much for listening. We really appreciate it. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out. Thanks again, and talk to you next week. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. 
None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.